If you have your Bible with you, uh, or if you want to use an app on your phone, you can feel free to do so. We'll be in Matthew 17 this morning, and we will be uh, reading verses 1 through 13. So if you have your Bibles with you, please flip, flip with me there as I read our text for this morning. And this is what it says. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He said, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly, certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. Uh, if you're new to Scarlet City, thank you for joining us. My name is Jay, and I'm the lead pastor here at Scarlet City. And, and I and other, others would love to connect with you after our worship gathering. And we're delighted to have you as a guest. Uh, well, I want to begin uh, with a question a question all of us would have when we read a passage like this. So uh, if you're unafraid to lift your hand to this, feel free, or, or you can just remain seated and just answer it personally. Uh, but the question is, is anyone here into bird watching? Anyone? A few hands? Megan? Remember the time you watched the baby bird get eaten by her dog? Yeah. A little different type of watching than you might be thinking of. Um, yeah, some people are into bird watching. Um, I didn't particularly get it until I spent some time with Adam Rapp. Adam's here. Adam is, is into bird watching. And when we were traveling overseas, and uh, it was really interesting being with Adam in Delhi, Delhi, India, as one would imagine, even if you've never been, there's a lot of things to see. It's very overwhelming on your senses. A lot to hear, a lot to smell, a lot to see. And as we're driving around through Delhi, uh, Adam's like, oh, look, I think that's a black kite. Oh, Adam's seeing the birds. <laughs> or on another occasion, we're in the foothills of the Himalayas. Again, a lot to see, a lot to take in. It's so beautiful. And we would be sitting there, and, and Adam would, would kind of ask a question. He's kind of talking to himself a little bit and, uh, you know, kind of wondering. He'd say, like, I wonder, is that a red vented bulba? I would, I would look, hmm, I wonder, I wonder if it is. And of course, you know, I, I, 
you know, I didn't know. I just saw a bird. And in my mind, I would be like, is it a blue jay or a cardinal or an oriole? If it's not one of, if it's, if there's not a major league baseball team named after the bird, I probably am not sure what it is. But you know, a bird watcher, they see birds differently than the rest of us. They see it differently. When they see a bird, they understand that there's a particular habitat, a particular type of bird. They watch. They just don't see it. When I see, I just see a bird fly, a bird go. I wonder, is it something I'm familiar with? It's not. I don't really understand. A bird watcher appreciates when they see a very unique bird. They see the birds differently. I oftentimes in life, when there's things I come across that I don't quite understand, I just see it and move on. I pay no attention. I don't stop to reconsider how this unique situation may have some significance in my life. How do you see things that you're unfamiliar with? How do you see things that don't quite align with your experience? Are you prone to see it like I see some of those birds? Not a a blue jay, not a cardinal, not an oriole. Who cares? Are you able to watch and maybe wrestle with how does this unique experience, this new situation, this rare bird, so to speak, can it, does, can it have something to say on your life? We're looking at a passage that's very rare this morning. Uh, it's very popular, the transfiguration of Jesus, but it's very confusing. It's rare in all the Bible. We don't find anything else like this anywhere else in the Bible. And it's rare in ancient literature. This is very unique. A unique expression and a unique account of a very unique person, Jesus Christ. And so we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and and Matthew is presenting Jesus as a king, but a king that we've never encountered before. And to understand the meaning of what Matthew is wanting us to learn from this unique experience We need to put it in the habitat or the context, so to speak, of Jesus and the story that the gospel writer is telling. In Matthew, it's getting progressively dark. Jesus, in our passage, he's mentioned that uh, the cross is ahead, that death is ahead for him. It's getting darker. And next weekend, as we go through uh, the gospel, we're going to look at the triumphal entry, and that will lead to the crucifixion. It's getting darker in the account of Matthew. And in the midst of this progression toward darkness, we see a revealing of the light of Jesus Christ. And so in the midst of the darkness of our world, in the midst of events that we don't understand, how can the uniqueness we see here in Jesus Christ shape us? Let's look at it. Let's not just look past, oh, I don't quite understand. I'm not going to pay attention. Let's watch and see what can we learn. So two things this morning, the uniqueness of Jesus and how we can respond to it. What makes him unique and how can that uniqueness shape us today? 
Uh, First, what makes Jesus unique? We're going to look at two things in our text. Uh, The uniqueness of his identity and the uniqueness of his mission. Who he is and what he is doing. What he has done and what he is doing. First, his identity. In our passage, to understand what's happening here, there's a lot of imagery. And so I I want to explain it a little bit. In the Old Testament book of Exodus, we looked at this last year, God liberating his people from all that would enslave them. We see God raise up a prophet, Moses, and God is leading his people from slavery in Egypt. And in the book of Exodus and elsewhere in the Old Testament, God's presence is equated to a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And God's presence will lead God's people, but also we see its power. God's presence is able to defeat the Egyptian army, the the strongest military power of the day. We see God's presence when it comes down on Mount Sinai, the mountain shakes. We see in God's presence, God's voice speaks. We see in God's presence, even as at Moses, wanting to see God's presence, uh, God responds and says, no, you cannot really look at God's presence or else you will die. We see the power of Of God's presence in Exodus. And here we are, many years later, there's a mountain again. Again, God's voice is speaking. Moses is here again. Elijah, who also experiences God's presence on a mountain, is here. But what's different? God's presence is no longer a cloud or a pillar of fire, but it's in a person. God's glorious, majestic, Holy presence is in Jesus Christ. We see in verse 2, it says, His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Moses, on one occasion, when he experiences, when he catches a glimpse of God's presence in the Old Testament, when he returned to God's people, they looked at him and his face was shining. But Moses, in that episode, was merely reflecting the light, reflecting the glory. Here, Jesus isn't so much like the moon reflecting the the sunlight, but Jesus is the sun. God's very glorious presence. We have here a narrative uh, event that's illustrating a point that the Hebrew author makes in Hebrews 1 verse 3. He makes it pointedly, says this of Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What does this mean? Jesus' identity, we see that Jesus is the very glory and power of God. Jesus isn't just a prophet pointing to God. He is God. Jesus isn't just someone coming to bring light. He is the light. Jesus isn't someone to show the way. He is the way. Jesus doesn't just have a word from God. He is the very word of God. We see the uniqueness of his identity, that he is the very glory and power of God. But also, what does he come to do? What does he come to do? And we see here that Jesus enables permanent access into God's presence. He enables permanent access into God's presence. We talked about the power of God's presence in the Old Testament. 
And we mentioned that, that Moses wasn't even able to look fully at God's presence or else he would die. And we have other expressions of this where God's presence, if it's there, one cannot merely mosey in to that place. That's why there was the tabernacle and the holy of holies where God's presence would reside. And no one could merely just walk in there or else they would die. And, and we modern readers, we read that and we think, ooh, that's weird that someone would be in the presence of God and die, or that someone touches the Ark of the Covenant and they die. We just, we don't know what to make of that. It's actually a little offensive. We think, why? Why is it that way? Well, one of the reasons is because God in the Hebrew Scriptures and in the New Testament is held up as holy, utterly set apart, spiritually superior to any human being. And anytime we encounter something whose being is weightier than our being, we're prone to be crushed by it. Uh, recently, there was the Arnold Classic here in Columbus, our gift to the world. And, um, and I didn't know it was here. I, I, I didn't know until Joe Mulford asked me if I was there. I thought I would kind of took it as a compliment. Like, did you go to the Arnold Classic? I was like, no, I, one would think maybe. You know, it's bodybuilding. One would think maybe I, I should have been there. Until he said, I know you like people watching, and, you know, it's an interesting place. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. I don't watch bird, but I'll watch people, you know. Uh, but, you know, me, if I try to bench something, you know, I can get a little bit up, but you start adding on weight, eventually it's just going to crush me. The strongest person at the Arnold Classic, they can bench a lot, probably more than most of us, probably, you know, probably more. But if you had enough weight, and a large enough weight, the strongest person in the world can be crushed. And they wouldn't say, well, that's just not right, that's just unfair. Oh, it's obvious, the being of the weight it's too strong for them. It's just how it works. If you stare at the sun long enough, the power of the sun's rays will burn your eye. We know this physically, spiritually. God's weight is so much stronger than we can bear. Being in his presence, the being of his glory can crush us. It's why the prophet Isaiah, prophet in the Old Testament, a righteous person, why he says this upon seeing God. He said, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him, of God, who called me. And I said, what does he say upon seeing God, hearing God's voice? What does he say? Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me. Or Job says this, I had heard of you by this hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. And what does he say? Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. God's glory, his spiritual weight. Needs these prophets to just see their inadequacy. 
Peter here. It's why in verse 4, what does he do? What is, how does he respond? It's so interesting. And we'll look at this more a little later. But he says, he says to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And the idea here, what Peter is doing, he's not so much wanting to build a tent so that they can have a nice place to to be. He's protecting himself. The tent here represents the tabernacle. He's overwhelmed by what he's seeing, and he's thinking, we need protection. It's good that we're here. In order for us to be around something this weighty, this glorious, we need a tent. We need a tabernacle. But what happens as he's speaking in verse 5? While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard it, heard this, they fell on their faces and they're terrified. Why? Because the cloud now has enveloped them. God's glorious presence is right here. We hear his voice speaking. We see his radiance. And, and Peter and James and John, they are terrified. This is like being right in front of a train that's coming and you have nowhere to go. God's power, God's glory is right here. In their mind, the end is happening. They're huddled together. They're terrified. And what happens? They don't die. Verse 7, Jesus came and he touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And they lifted up their eyes and they saw no one but Jesus only. What we see is that Jesus makes it possible for sinful people to experience the presence of God. He is the presence and he enables you and me to experience God's presence permanently. Matthew later, I hate to give away the clues where we're going, but Matthew later at Jesus' crucifixion, after he dies, what happens? A veil is torn. The veil in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies, the place of God's presence, is torn. Symbolizing the power that Jesus makes God's presence available to all people in all places. Jesus enables God's presence. This is why the Hebrew author in chapter 9 says this of Jesus. He says, He, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. How does Jesus make God's presence possible for you and for me? He takes the crushing weight of sin so that it could be lifted off of us. He loses his power so that we could be empowered. He lost his radiance and beauty so that we could have the hope of one day experiencing God's beauty in full. He loses his glory so that we can get it. Jesus is the presence of God, the glory of God, the power of God, and he enables us to experience that presence today. Now, there are many implications of this. One I want to highlight this morning. Implications of this truth of who Jesus is. 
And why seeing the uniqueness of who he is and what he's done, the the implications that it has for us. One implication I want to highlight. Uh, Luc Ferry is a French philosopher, and he has a a wonderful, shorter book called A Brief History of Thought, where he outlines the five philosophies of the West. Beginning with Greek philosophy, outlining Christianity, humanism, postmodernism, and then today deconstructionism. And if you're someone who enjoys history or philosophy, it's a great book. Uh, He's not a Christian, uh, so he's just outlining the different approaches. And in it, he, he talks about how Christianity and the idea of Christianity was so powerful that it reshaped the entire thought process of the West in a few generations. And he outlines how exactly it was different from Greek thought. Uh, Greek thought, it equated the center of the universe, ultimate understanding, to what it called the logos. The logos. And the logos was the ultimate word. It was, it was what one needed to align their life around. This was Greek thought before Christianity. The logos. And of course, there were different views of what the logos was. The Stoics, uh, one group of Greek thinkers and philosophers, they believed that the logos was, uh, that the universe was a harmonious whole. And at the center of the universe was the word, the, how the world operated, and one, need to, one needed to fit within that whole. And so you needed to understand the principle of life and live according to that principle. One reflection of that today would be what you would find in The Lion King. The circle of life. We're all part of a harmonious whole. You just play your part. One day you will die and become grass and someone will eat the grass and live. The circle of life. This was a Stoic's view. The Epicureans, though, we might relate to a little better. The Epicureans said that the center of the universe, the Logos, was what would make you happy. It was love. It was passion. So don't so much think Lion King, think college students here. You know? Sorry, college students. But we, we say this today, you know, that we operate under this way. It's like, what's your passion? What is your passion? And you need to align your life around that passion. We're very familiar with this approach today. So then what did Christianity offer? How did Christianity come in and totally change their view of the Logos? Here's how Faree puts it. First and most fundamentally, and and it should, there we go. First and most fundamentally, the Logos, which as we've seen from the Stoics, merged with the impersonal, harmonious, and divine structure of the cosmos as a whole, came to be identified for Christians with the single and unique personality, that of Christ. To the horror of the Greeks, the new believers maintained that the Logos, in other words, the divine principle, was in no sense identical with the harmonious order of the world, but was incarnated in one outstanding individual, namely Christ. What they're saying, what he's saying is this. Before the Logos, the harmonious principles of the world, it was a principle, it was a way of living. But in Jesus, it became a person, a con Crete person who you can know and love and who can know you and love you. That's why the Gospel of John opens up. How does it open? In the beginning was the Word. 
the Logos. Jesus is God incarnate. And he offers us a way of relating to God that isn't just rooted in a principle. It's rooted in a person. And what happened? It transformed the world. Faree goes on. He says this, listen. This personalizing of salvation allows us firstly to comprehend by means of a concrete example how mankind can pass from one vision of the world to another. What he's saying here is this, that the Christians, because of Jesus, the person of Jesus, see the future is not just some abstract future, but a future with a body, a concrete example. Jesus here in the transfiguration gives us a concrete example of our future. But there's more. He goes on. But there is more. By resting its case upon a definition of the human experience and an unprecedented idea of love, Christianity was to have an incalculable effect upon the history of ideas. To give one example, it is quite clear that in this Christian reevaluation of the human person, of the individuals as such, the philosophy of human rights to which we subscribe today would never have established itself. See, when you see that at the center of existence is a person in Jesus Christ and his power and his grace, when you get in touch with that, it will revolutionize your life. It revolutionized the world. It gave us a whole new understanding of what a human being is and what the future for humanity can be. This is utterly unique and it utterly reshaped the world. Now, how can it reshape us? How can it reshape us? How do we respond? In the text, we see a few different responses to the uniqueness of who Jesus is. One response is viewing Jesus as a threat. When you see his power, his grace to want to eliminate him, get rid of him. Uh, in verse 9, it, Jesus gives this interesting command. We don't quite know what to make of it when we first read it. He says, to, when they come down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. It's like, you wonder, Jesus, what, why? Why would we not say anything? This seems pretty cool. We would want to Instagram this right away. Jesus, Elijah, hold on. I need to you know, get out my phone and we're going to... He says, no, don't tell anybody. Why does he do this? In the Gospel of Mark, he does this over and over and over again. He tells people, do not tell people when he does something divine. He says, don't say anything. One of the reasons is, is it's fairly obvious when we understand the background and the context of the situation is Jesus knows that there's people trying to kill him. And if the religious leaders, they're looking for evidence to crucify him, and he knows his time hasn't come. He knows that there's some people when confronted with who he truly is, they want to take him out. We, when confronted with who Jesus truly is, we have a tendency to want to eliminate him too. And how do we do it? You might be thinking, you know, Jesus isn't around. I'm not going to crucify him today. How do we eliminate Jesus today? Some of us, we want to eliminate Jesus when we're confronted with his power, his uniqueness. We might believe in Jesus. We talked a little bit about this last week, but we might believe in him, but we don't 
live by faith. We mentally assent, but we do not really need his power today. It's why many of us in the West, we don't pray. We have all kinds of strategies. You know, we feel guilty, like, I should pray. I should. This is the right thing. God wants me to. When you go to other parts of the world where they see God's power necessary, man, they don't they pray because they are dependent on God. And when you put yourself in a place where you really need God to come through, you'll pray too. Some of us, we eliminate Jesus. We eliminate his power. We don't think we really need him to show up. Others of us, what threatens us is his grace. We want to eliminate his grace. Who is it that's wanting to eliminate Jesus? It's the Pharisees are some of the people wanting to eliminate him. What they don't like is they don't like Jesus saying things like, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Jesus is saying the only way into the presence of God is through me. And what many of us want when the idea of worshiping a God that we cannot see, what can we see? Rules. Law. We can feel threatened by the need for Christ's work. Threatened by his grace. Others of us, though, we're not so much trying to eliminate Jesus. We're doing what Peter's trying to do. We're trying to control Jesus. In the passage in verse 4, looking again at what Peter says, Peter said to Jesus, I love this. He says, Lord, it is good that we are here. (laughs) This is a good thing. Peter's like, man, you know what? Considering the situation, it's really great that we're here. And he continues, if you wish... I will make three tents here, one for you, Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And as he's speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed him, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And I love the last line, underlined it, listen to him. Peter shows up, starts talking. Good thing we're here. All right, here's the plan. We, we, we need some protection. We're going to build some tents. If it's cool with you, Jesus. And God says, Peter, know your place. (laughs) Know your place. Listen to Jesus. Listen to him. What posture do we have with God? What posture do we have with God? Do we listen? Do we listen to God? Or are we just talking? Do we listen? I mean, remember, we're talking about here the radiance of the glory of God, the one who spoke life into existence. Do we show up and, re- and, and lecture God? Try to control God? I'm mindful of the original Jurassic Park, the lawyer. Anyone remember the lawyer shows up and when he sees the dinosaurs, he's thinking, what? We're going to make a lot of money. This is amazing. We're going to be rich. And what happens? T-Rex gets loose and finds them on a toilet. Not a good place, you know, not a good situation. T-Rex was so powerful. You know, he thought he could control this power and make a profit from it. T-Rex had something else in mind. 
we, we want to control God. We want to lecture God. We want to ask God to play by our rules. If that's how we're relating to God, we're not relating to a God. We want to control God. We want to eliminate Jesus, control him, but here's how we can respond. How can, how can the power of what Jesus is doing here reshape us? Here's how. When we bow to his power and stand in his grace. In verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their knees and they're terrified. They're thinking, it is over. It is done. Peter, why? Why were you? God's presence is here and what happens? Jesus touches them and says, rise. Have no fear. No fear. No fear. Mentioned earlier in the Gospel of Matthew that the narrative's getting darker and darker, and in the middle is this expression of God's light. And oftentimes, life can feel like this gospel. It's getting darker and darker and darker, and we see the injustices of the world, darkness of the world, and we wonder what, what could be done. We feel the darkness personally. We have questions, and we're afraid. We're afraid. We're afraid of the darkness, afraid of the dark. Why are people afraid of the dark? My kids are afraid of the dark. They come and wake us up. I've been sharing about this. It keeps happening. <laughs> kids wake us up. And they say, I'm afraid of the dark. And you say, why are you afraid of the dark? Just, there's nothing. Emperor Palpatine's not in your room. I don't know why I played you that movie. Not going to happen again. He's not there. You know, kids are afraid of the dark because they can't see. They can't see. They don't know what's around. You know, in life, there's so much we don't know. We want to control it. We want to have all the answers. And yet there's so many questions that are unanswered. And we look at the darkness. And we just wonder what truth can be found. When the terrors of the dark surround us, where can we find security? Jesus here gives us someone to look at. When the darkness comes, and it will. When the pain is present. When injustice is around. We look as they did to Jesus. We look to him and we see his glory and we see his power and here's and we see his grace and here's the amazing thing of it all when you look at Jesus what you can see is God who watches you. Not just as someone who glances and moves on, but he watches you. He knows you. He knows your name. He knows your habitat. He knows your situation. And he is holding it all together so that when you can't, you can look to the one who can. Let's pray. God, thank you for being a God who wants to 
incarnate your goodness, incarnate your love, incarnate your power, and you have done it in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for being a unique God. And we admit there's a lot we do not understand. There's a lot we don't know. But in the midst of the not knowing, in the midst of the questions and the whys, help us to look to the question that you answer, and that is who. Who can provide deliverance? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.